Well, is it warming up out there? Is it starting to get a little warmer? Uh, boy, the first service was still overcast, felt like San Diego. I felt like I was at home. <laughs> it was awesome. It was cold. Uh, so it's, what a beautiful day. And uh, I'm excited about this, this fall coming up and about kickoff of life groups. In a week or two, we'll be signing up for that and just so much. God has just on the move here at Rocky Peak, and it's exciting to see. So I'm excited to be going in the time of teaching. If you are new today, um, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. We use it every week, so you'll definitely want to pull that out. And if you guys are all set, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Yeah. All right, let's go. Father, we are just excited to be here. Your people gathered in your name under the leadership of King Jesus, being led by your spirit. God, opening up your word, we pray you'd speak today with power and with clarity. Be with me, be with my strength, voice, clarity. I pray for us as a church. We would gather around your word that we would be on our knees. That we would be before your word, for your word is like a hammer. And we just pray that you would break idols in our life today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, well, today we're continuing on this series that we've been in for the last four or five weeks. It's called uh, Scent Piercing the Darkness. And those of you who are brand new, just a, a quick recap. Uh, this is actually the fourth mini-series uh, in a longer overarching series. Think of it like the fourth season, an ongoing TV drama. And the, so the longer series is called Scent. And uh, it's a study of one of the most important books in our Bible, the New Testament, which is the book of Acts, where, uh, the, where, where a man named Luke is describing kind of the rise and rapid growth of the early movement of Jesus from soon after his resurrection, the next 30 years across the Roman Empire. So in this fourth series... We're watching as one of the key leaders of the movement, a man named uh, Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. Uh, he's recruited a, a small team to, that he's going to travel with into the area surrounding the Aegean Sea. It's actually an area that's in the news all the time today. So it's an area bordered by Turkey and Greece. Uh, and he's been sharing the message of Jesus, uh, taking the message where it's never gone before. And so today we come to the famous ancient city of Athens. And so uh, even if you know nothing about world history, we all know Athens, right? I mean, Athens, uh, uh, about five or six centuries before this, the center of the ancient Western world, uh, politically, militarily, religiously, culturally, philosophically, you know, it's a home of Plato, home of Socrates, adopted home of Aristotle, uh, home of Epicurus and Zeno. And so by the time the Apostle Paul comes into Athens today, uh, it is not no longer. It's no longer. It's, it's not a big city anymore. It's in fact, remember last week we were in Thessalonica, 200,000. Remember I said that? Today, he's in Athens, maybe 10,000. So it's a shadow of what it once was. And yet, it's still, in many ways, the heart and soul of the Greco-Roman Empire because religiously and philosophically, it's, it's like the heartbeat of, of, the, na- of the, the empire. And so uh, today, Paul is going, to, is going to be going into Athens, and as he, he goes into Athens, uh, you, you may remember that last week, he, st- he was in Berea, which is about 200 miles to the north. So we should probably get oriented here. Let's take our maps out. And um, if you open up on the inside, you have the section, Idolatry 101, the unknown God. And, uh, and so if you look at this map, on the left side of the map, you see the province, the Roman province of Achaia. And so that's where the action is today. We're looking at the city of Athens. You see it there. Find it on the map. And uh, if you go north, uh, you'll see Berea, which is about 200 miles to the north. So last week, if you're here, remember Paul got kicked out of his, uh, Berea. His life was in danger. And so accompanied by his security team, he traveled uh, down the seacoast about 200 miles, and he lands at Athens. 
Remember, he had to leave his two partners in ministry, Timothy and Silas, behind at Berea. So he's in Athens. He's hanging out in Athens. He's walking the city, touring the city, starting some ministry. And Athens is going to be full of idols. Uh, it's the center of the religious world. And so it's full of pagan temples. It's full of uh, idols and altars throughout the city. Ancient historians describe it as like every corner. And of course, as a Jew, a monotheist, this is deeply offensive, right? I mean, it's like this is false God. These people are living in darkness. I don't know if you've ever traveled to uh, maybe a third world country or something where the gospel is not really penetrated, and there's just like idols everywhere. It's a very oppressive type of environment. It's like these people, uh, lives and worship and sacrifice going on all to gods that don't really exist. And so Paul is really exercised by all this, deeply disturbed, and the Greek is a real strong word. And so um, he's going to be engaging there. Now, if you were to go to Athens today, you would still see many of these uh, idols, or not idols, but uh, you would see many of the temples and places of worship. In fact, probably many of you have seen uh, the Parthenon. Uh, uh, so in these ancient cities, you'd often have a city, and then there'd often be a big hill. They'd build them by a big hill that was called the Acropolis. And the Acropolis would be a place where they'd put a lot of their temples. Uh, it would also be a place where they often have a huge fortress. So in time of war, the city population could swell inside of that for a place of defense. And so Athens was like that. There's a big Acropolis. On top of the Acropolis are many different temples. The most famous one was the temple to Athena, which was called the Parthenon. And you probably recognize it. In fact, Lynn and I were there last fall. I've got a couple pictures from our trip. I just thought we'd do some home movies here. Um, so, we got, uh, so there is the Parthenon where we were there. Incredible site. So this is a site, the worship of Athena. I actually have a, a couple ancient Greeks in the next shot here. You've got there, uh, that's, uh, that's Zeno on the right and Aphrodite on the left. But uh, anyway, so uh, moving along. Anyway, uh, so Paul comes into this city, and here's what's really interesting today is that, as you know, when Paul comes into a new city, what's he do first? He always goes to the synagogue, right, to share with the Jews. And Luke will say, yeah, that's what he does. But what's really interesting is Luke tells hardly anything today about the ministry to the Jews. He wants to get on because he wants to talk to us and share this. This is how Paul would share Jesus with highly intellectual pagans. So when you share Jesus with different kinds of people, it takes different strategies, right? And so you can't share Jesus with pagans like you'd share Jesus with Jews, different presuppositions, different authority bases, and so on. And so really what Luke wants to share with us is how is Paul going to share Jesus, bring the light of Jesus into this dark place with high pagan intellectuals, right? So, so uh, as we go into the text today, we're going to see that. That's what it's about. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to chapter 17. And verse 16. And we're going to finish out the chapter. So uh, while Paul was waiting for them, so Paul, remember uh, Silas and Timothy are, are still in Berea, 200 miles to the north. So while Paul was waiting for him in Athens, he was greatly distressed, really upset because the city is full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue, starts, you know, starts in the synagogue. He reasoned with uh, both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. We've seen that throughout Acts as well as in the marketplace, day by day. So she says, on the weekends, on Sabbath, on Saturday, Paul would go to synagogue, do what he always does. But during the week, he was engaging with these pagan philosophers in the agora, in the marketplace. So he's taking the message to the streets, and he's sharing the message, life, death, resurrection of Jesus with it. Now, 
as he's there, he's going to encounter two major kinds of philosophers. So in the ancient world at this time, two of the most popular philosophies were Epicureanism and Stoicism. So let's talk, just tip of the iceberg, what they believe about God. Epicureans were very similar to what we would today call deists. They believed that uh, they believed in the gods, right? But they believed that the gods were distant and uninvolved in human affairs. Right? Stoics were very different. Stoics were more like uh, modern day, maybe Hinduism or New Age. Um, they were uh, what we would call today in religion panentheists, not pantheists, but panentheists. They believe that kind of God is sort of in everything. Um, so what, what they they didn't believe in a personal God. They believed that kind of a, almost like the force be with you, that kind of a God, like this rational cosmic spirit that inhabits all of creation. In fact, they, uh, they called this, their God the world soul. And so in the same way that a human body is like a physical body with a spiritual soul that, that kind of empowers, uh, in that same way, they looked at God as being this sort of rational spirit that energized all of creation. That's why creation is so orderly. So the way that you live a good life is by living in order with the creation, but it's not a personal God, right? So into that, into that, into that uh, philosophical, religious environment, uh, Paul is bringing a whole different description of the God of Israel and the God of Jesus Christ. And so, anyway, um, it says that he would uh, also go in the middle of verse 17, as well as the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. Now, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, we just talked with them, began to debate with him. And some said, hey, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, that word babbler in the Greek is not a pleasant word, right? So, uh, and so others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Now, this was the same charge that got Socrates killed about 500 years before. So it's a serious charge. Uh, there's kind of rules about what you can share, foreign gods. You know, you don't want to be introducing new, new gods. And uh, so they said this because Paul was preaching, remember, in the Agora, the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. So he's teaching during the week. And finally, they decide, you know what? We need to give this guy an official hearing. We need to take him to the top official body of Athens. Think of it like the Senate of Athens, okay? It was called the Areopagus. The reason this top ruling body called the Areopagus is that initially they met at a place called the Areopagus. So in Greek, Areopagus means the hill of Ares. Now, Ares is a god. It's uh, the Greek god of war. So it's equivalent with the, the Roman god of war is Mars. And so the hill of Ares is what we know as Mars Hill. And I said, some of you have heard of Mars Hill, very famous place for philosophers would teach and so on. They said, let's take him to the Areopagus. At the time that Paul was there, uh, the Areopagus, uh, the council that met there, that kind of had this ruling, the rule of the ethics and the morals of the city, uh, they no longer met at Mars Hill at that location. They met in the Agora, in the marketplace. But, but, uh, but when you hear Mars Hill... This was actually a location right below the Parthenon. So remember we talked about that there's an Acropolis, right, on the hill, on top of the Parthenon, the other uh, kind of other uh, temples. And then below that was Mars Hill. If you go there today, there's no longer any buildings there. It's just kind of eroded rock. But there's a cool plaque here. The Apostle Paul was once here. 
That was one of my favorite parts of the whole journey. In fact, um, I think we've got about a minute and six seconds for some more home movies. So here we go. Mm. Believe it or not, I'm in Athens right now, and I'm on Mars Hill. And this is a very famous place because this is where the Apostle Paul came to share the message of Christ with the philosophers of Athens. We're told in uh, Acts chapter 17 that Paul started by going to um, the synagogues and sharing Christ with some of the, the Jewish leaders, but they weren't really receptive. And so he uh, decided to go out into the marketplace, and this is where all the philosophers, the thinkers of the day, would meet Epicureans, the Stoic philosophers, and they engaged them about Jesus, and of course it was all new information for them, and uh, he began to share about the true God, he had seen many idols in the city, and uh, from this, one of the idols was to an unknown God, and so he began to tell about this God who is the creator of all, of all things, who for one man had made all the nations, and he has a plan for our lives, he's appointed exactly where we're to live and when. They wanted to share about Jesus and his resurrection. And of course, they were real open to that. But there were, there were some who came to faith that day. And, uh, and so I'm saying there, Mark, so you'll see in the background, you see the Parthenon, which is the, uh, the uh, huge uh, Acropolis uh, that's over um, Athens, but especially dedicated to uh, Diana. And so, Goddess Diana. So, uh, anyway, I uh, just wanted to uh, share a little bit of our day with you. Hope all's going well. Talk to you soon. Now, now I'm on Mars Hill, right? That's my back. And you're looking out from Mars Hill on some guy that got in my picture. Uh, like, hey, dude, no. But you can see Athens, right? So you can kind of see, you get the, the lay of the land, right? So behind me uh, would be uh, Parthenon, the Acropolis, and looking out the city. And, and so this is Mars Hill, right? So, so what, here's what's happened. So what happens then is that uh, they said, let's take him to the Areopagus, this ruling council, because we want to know more about this teaching. And so here's what's going to happen. Paul is going to begin to share with them kind of the story of Jesus, the story of the Bible. And I want you to catch this. He is not going to refer to Bible verses. Unlike when he's talking with Jews, because they don't read the Bible, this is not authoritative to them, he's not going to, and, and he's going to start off very intentionally, he's going to look for, for common ground. And I want to do just a quick sidebar here, because we're not going to talk about this a lot today, but when we're sharing Jesus with other people, many times we make a fatal mistake by starting the conversation by telling people how we disagree with them. We start by telling them how they're screwed up and how we can fix them, you know, or why what they believe is so wrong and why what we believe is right. Let me give you 18 reasons. What you'll notice is Paul shares with these pagans He's, pagan blah, he's not going to do that. He's going to look for common ground. He's going to say, listen, um, he's going to start off by saying, listen, you know, I, I was walking through your city and, uh, and looking at all these objects of worship, and uh, he said, I, I've, I noticed you're very religious. Now, to us in the United States right now, that would be a negative, right? It's like, you're very religious. That's, most people don't want to be that way. But in the ancient world, to be very religious would be seen as a positive. It would be seen as you honor the gods. You live an honorary life, right? So he starts off by common ground and saying, hey, I, I, I noticed that you're very, it'd be like us saying to someone today, hey, I know that you're a very spiritual person. Like in our culture right now, that would be seen as a positive, right? So he doesn't talk about, hey, you're all messed up. He says, hey, I've noticed that, hey, we have this in common. You're very religious. And he builds common ground. And so he says, but you know, as I was, as I was walking through the city, I found, uh, I found this, this altar to an unknown God. 
right? There's like, there's altars everywhere, they got, but there's one, it says to the unknown God. And uh, so, you know, I don't know whether they, uh, they're just like, hey, I'm sure we missed someone along the way. And if they ever come to Athens, we want to make sure, oh, that one was for you, you know, uh, we don't want to make you mad. Or maybe, you know, the inscription had worn off over time, and they're like, well, we can't remember who it's to, but let's, to the unknown God, want to honor him. But uh, he says, but I found this one to an unknown God. And so by common admission, uh, though you're very religious, there are some things about God you're kind of admitting that you don't really know. And so I'd love to talk to you about that, you see. And so what he's going to do is he's going to build common ground and say, you know, we're not that different. You're religious. I'm religious. Um, There's certain things you've admitted you don't know. Can I share those with you? You see what I'm saying? He's building common ground with people. So let's see what happens. So, um, so they, uh, they take him in verse 19, and uh, they bring him to a meeting in the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what you mean. We can't figure it out. And then Luke, funny side, sidebar by Luke, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there just spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. It's kind of like talk radio. What a waste of time. But uh, he's like, well, whatever. That's what they do there. So anyway, so Paul stands up in this meeting, the Areopagus, he says, people of Athens, hey, I see that in every way you're very religious. Start strong, positive. Uh, I was walking around the city. I, I looked carefully at the objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And so, you know, by your own admission, you're kind of saying you're ignorant of what you worship. And so this is what I'd like to proclaim to you. I'd like to share with you about that unknown God. And so now he launches in this kind of a big picture description of the, the truth about who God is and who we are as a race. And so he starts off with God, and he says, you know, the God who made, uh, who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. So notice how right away he's saying, you know, God is different than the God of the Epicureans, who's distant God. He's, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's, and he's not like the Stoics. He's separate. He's not like God. He's not a world spirit. He's like the creator God who's separate from his creation. So he's kind of laying the groundwork who God is. And he says he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. Now, catch this, just quick, something real quick here. Um, we're going to be talking about idolatry today. One of the marks of idolatry is that as fallen human beings, when we think about God, we tend to project our own ideas or ourselves and then call that God. Right? We often tend to, hey, God is like, uh, he's like a bigger version than us. And so this is what idolatry does. And so he's going to say he's not really like us. He's, he's the creator of everything. He doesn't live in like a house. And he doesn't need to be like served with all this food as if he's hungry or something like that. He's independent. So in verse 25, it says he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He's the source of all reality. Right? And then, so now he's talking about who God is. Let's talk about who we are. He says, from one man, and notice what he's doing. He's taking them back to Genesis, but he's not quoting Genesis. He's just giving us the biblical narrative. He says, from one man, you know, Adam, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their land. So he's saying um, this, this God is a personal God. He's not just a world spirit. He's a creator God separate from his creation, but he's very involved with his creation. He's not distant like the Epicureans. He's involved with the human race, and he is actively directing the affairs of human history. And he says the reason he did this, in verse 27, is so that 
we would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him. So this God is not just a personal God. He wants relationship with us. He says, and the, the, though he's not far from any of us, he's not distant away. And now Paul is going to quote a couple of their poets. And what we need to remember is that for Greco-Roman religion, the poets were their theologians. Okay? They, the poets are, the poets and their playwrights, they're the ones telling these events that happened hundreds of years before about the gods and how things work. So for them, the poets are their theologians. So as he's going to build his case, he's not going to build his case on the Bible. He's going to build on their spiritual authorities. He's going to find points of agreement and build on that. And so he says, the first quote uh, is from a poet hundreds of years old. He says, verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Isn't that awesome? I love that. And then he says, and some of you, as some of your poets say, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. He said, in the past, God has overlooked such what? Makeshah. We live in a culture today that's always telling us it doesn't really matter what you believe about God as long as you're sincere. In fact, all the different religions are just kind of saying the same thing. Allah is the same as Yahweh, is the same as Jesus. It's all the same, just different names, different paths. What I want you to catch here, Paul is, says, no, that's not true. He says, there is a real God. He has created heavens and earth. And so some things that are said about him are true. Some things said about them are said in ignorance. There's truth and there's error. And he says that you have been on the wrong path. And all you believe about these gods that are basically like in large versions of human beings committed all the same attributes, you know? I mean, the gods of Greco-Rome, I mean, they're raping, killing, murdering, betraying, lying, envious. I mean, it's just like big versions of us. And he says that those were days of ignorance. And he says, but the, the beautiful thing is that God is, uh, verse 30, he's willing to overlook that ignorance. Like the light is piercing the darkness right now. And he said, but, uh, but now he commands all men everywhere to what? Repent. repent. So let's talk about that word. Make sure we're clear on it. To repent in Greek, meta noeo. Uh, noeo means to think, meta against. So to repent is to think against. I used to think this way, now I think against. I think this way. In their case, I used to think God was Zeus, uh, God was Hermes, uh, God was Mars and Aphrodite, and this is the way life worked, and this is the way our story worked. This is where the human race comes from, that whole deal. He says, but now uh, we see it uh, differently. I turn from that. I change the way I think. So to repent means to change the way you think. I'm going a different direction. I am now coming under the leadership of the true God. And so, um, and so anyway, so uh, he says, so in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Um, and uh, so he said, and, and he said, this is really important that you do because he said a day, a day is coming when he will judge the world with justice. Um, so every one of us is going to go before this creator and he's going to judge us according to what's right and true and good. And so he says, it's important that you kind of get this thing right. You know? um, and he says, and he's, then he's given proof of this. Um, he said, and he's, but he's going to do this, uh, he's gonna, this justice is going to be rendered, catch us, by the man he has appointed. Isn't that interesting? 
He says, a day is coming where everyone in the human race will go before this creator, but they're going to be judged by a fellow human being. Now, I want to do a really quick sidebar on this, all right? Because this is something I think we often miss as followers of Jesus. We understand as followers of Jesus, Orthodox Christ followers, that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, right? So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So so that God became human beings. So he's 100% God, 100% man. We understand that. But I think often what we don't realize as followers of Jesus, that once the Son became human being, that he will always be a human being. He's never reverting back. God has become one of us, and so Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God, King Jesus, ruling over creation, will always be the God-man. And there's tremendous significance in this because, remember, those of you who were here a couple years ago, we went through the Genesis Chronicles. One of the lessons we learned is that when we were created as a race, we were created to rule over the cosmos. Do you remember that? And so the first man and the first woman were created to be the king and queen over creation. As a race, when we followed our great enemy, we gave up that right. And so we made the enemy the God of this world. What Jesus is, so we became slaves and we're no longer ruling. Death rules, sin rules. What Jesus did is he came to rescue us as a race and return us to our rightful place as rulers over creation. And so Jesus has come as our ultimate king, the God-man who will rule. And it's because of that, because he is the son of man, that he is fit to judge us because he is both God and man and he understands what it is. And so in John chapter 5, Jesus says that the father will judge no one. He has given all judgment to the son. And so this is powerful that we will all stand as a human race before a man, Jesus Christ, who will be the judge of all the earth. Every one of us will go one-on-one with Jesus to be judged according to what is right and true and good. And so Paul is saying, you better get this right because you are going to answer to this creator God who is going to be judged by his son. And then he goes on and he says, hey, and he proved that this is the man who will judge by raising him from the dead. Now, up to this point, they're listening pretty attentively. At this point, it's going to begin to go south. And the reason was, in the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, they did not believe in resurrection at all. It's interesting because often today, critics of the resurrection of Jesus, they will say, well, you know, in the the early first century, they were so gullible, everyone believed that kind of thing. And so in this resurrection, they just quickly believe it. The reality is, historically, is exactly the opposite of that that no one in the ancient world, other than some Jews, believed in a resurrection. The ancient world, you know, Egyptian, Roman, they, they all believed in life after death. No one believed in physical life after death, a resurrected body. In fact, they felt like no one would want that. Um, they, it, the way the Greek philosophers thought of it is that it's our bodies that get us into trouble, it's our bodies that get angry, lustful. You know, it's like, they. so if we could just get rid of our bodies, we'd be great. So their view is that after you die, you get rid of your body, and, and then according to a different view, different things happen, but you're going to continue on, but you would never want your body back. 
In fact, I was just reminded this week I've been listening to, um, uh, you know, I'm on audiobooks all the time. I'm listening to Plutarch's Lives. Okay, so Plutarch is a Roman writer from the first century. And he kind of has bios on some of the key leaders of the ancient world. And he is writing a bio on Romulus, who is the founder of Rome. And when he gets, after telling his whole story, uh, at the end of it, talks about his death and different theories about what happened to him after his death, he specifically comes out and talks about that, you know, of course we would never get a body back. Who would ever want that? So as Paul is sharing in Athens, in fact, it's interesting, one of the famous plays that was very popular in the ancient world is about the founding of the city of Athens, you know, hundreds of years before. And in this play, the god Apollo, remember one of their theology, the god Apollo tells the Athenians, as you start your city, you want to live your lives well because after death, there is no resurrection. And so here is Paul coming into this pagan environment that is completely bringing something paradoxical or or countercultural to them of the resurrection. So they're all listening until that point, but you can see, you can feel the change of mood as he gets to uh, verse uh, 30, it says, In the past God overlooked the ignorance, now he commands everyone to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Boom. And now I look at it. And when they heard about the resurrection, some of them sneered. And uh, others said, we want to hear you again. That's interesting. And at that, Paul left the council, and some people became followers of Paul. They actually believed. There's some new believers there. You saw two of them on the screen earlier. And uh, <laughs> among them were Dionysius, uh, who's a member of the Areopagus, like, uh, like a senator, and uh, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. And so with that, Paul kind of, uh, or Luke kind of, kind of pulls this description of Athens to a close, and it's a fascinating encounter of like, here's how Paul would share Jesus with uh, pagan intellectuals, right? And so look, Luke, as he writes Acts, he's, he's shown us how Paul would share Jesus with Jews. He has shown us in chapter 14 in Lister how Paul would share Jesus with kind of pagan backwoodsmen, very uneducated. Now he showed, here's how Paul would share Jesus with intellectuals. And so he's teaching us as followers of Jesus, you don't use the same methods with everyone. You, you form common ground. You look for common ground, and here's how you approach it, right? So, so incredible passage. In fact, next week, we're going to come back, and we're going to dive back in this message because it's an incredible uh, message of Paul, so much there. But for today, for our time today, what I want to do is focus on this big picture issue that Luke is addressing. It is sort of the, the spiritual history of our race. We're seeing it here in Athens, and that is this topic of idolatry. As we've gone through Acts, you know, all these believers coming to Jesus, other, apart from the Jews and the God-fearers, they're coming out of a, a, a background of idolatry that permeates their whole society. Uh, of course, this is the history of the race. Much of the world today, still, this is part of our history. And even as followers of Jesus, what we're going to see today is idolatry is always just a step away. And so today I want to talk about this 40,000-foot topic, this topic of idolatry. So there in your note sheet is a section... It's called Idolatry 101, The Basics. And what I want to do is I want to highlight two big-picture principles that are really important for us to understand and then come back and ask one kind of hard-hitting question as we apply it. So number one, the first thing I want you to get today is that idolatry comes naturally. 
Now, what I mean by this is that as a fallen race, you and I, that part of our fallen nature is there is a natural gravitational pull towards taking something in creation, making it our highest value, and worshiping it because we'll believe it will lead us to fulfillment. There's a a great passage on idolatry, probably the most important passage in all the Bible, in Romans chapter 1. We're not, we don't have time to turn there today. It's a very dense passage. It takes a long time to unpack. I put it on your note sheet, 118 to 32, if you want to check it out. But I, do, I want to lay out what Paul argues. In Romans chapter 1, what Paul says is he gives a spiritual history of the human race. He says, as a race, we have rejected the truth about God. That we, you know, so long ago the garden, we didn't want to be ruled. So we rejected the truth about God. And he said that, that God has revealed himself to the human race through two things. In chapters 1 and 2 of Romans, he says God has revealed himself through creation and through conscience. Right? So if you've never read a Bible, uh, you live in the back country, you've never seen any missionary, whatever, they says that every person alive, that God has revealed himself to the human race through creation and conscience. In other words, when you look at creation, it's incredibly beautiful, it's incredibly complex and brilliant. Whoever made this thing, obviously it didn't just happen. Right? So uh, obviously, the incredible whoever made it is brilliant, smart, huge, powerful, beautiful, and good. Right? So there's a lot you can learn about the creator just by the creation, Paul says. He says, and then if you want to learn about the character of this creation, all you have to do is look at the human heart. Because in the human heart, in chapter 2 of Romans, he says that God has written his moral law on our hearts. And you see this in world religion. This is where when people say, oh, all religions teach the same thing, on this point, they're right. That if you were to study all the major religions of the world, what you would find is there's a very common moral code. And the reason is God has written his law on our hearts. So God has revealed his power, his beauty, his glory, and his character in conscience and creation. But what Paul says in Romans 1 is we didn't want to obey this God. We wanted to be our own gods. And so we rejected the truth about God, but because we're designed to worship at the core, we are created to be worshipers, that we're going to have to find something else to worship. And so what we do is we create gods of our own imagination. We create gods of our own image, gods that are like projection of ourselves that will allow us to do what we want to do. And then what we do is we find something in creation And we make it our ultimate value in life to serve and worship it. And we worship the creation instead of the creator. And he says the end result is that we lose ourself in the process. And here's why. We were created in the image of God. You were designed to be like God. What's right and true and good. When you reject the creator, you not only lose God, you lose yourself. And Paul goes on in Romans 1 to say that when this happens, when a culture does this, they profess themselves to be wise, but in reality they become fools. And he says their foolish minds are darkened. And he says what happens is the culture begins to disintegrate. And he says what happens is there becomes confusion at every level. And he starts by detailing sexual confusion. And you see that in our culture right now. Like we don't know who we are. And it's getting worse fast. 
And then he goes on, he talks, and it's moral confusion, and it's social confusion, and it's relational chaos. And there's a breakdown at every level of culture, and it becomes a culture of death. And so as Paul looks back, he says, this is the story of the human race. But what we need to understand is that we're all part of that culture. We're all part of that. We all have this natural pull to the dark side to take something in creation, make it our ultimate value, and serve and worship it, believing it will lead us to life. And so you see this, for example, in the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel is like a case study of the human race. And so let's think back to their story, right? So the nation of Israel comes out of Egypt. God rescues them. Amazing, right? The 10 plagues going through the Red Sea. Three months later, they arrive at Mount Sinai. God shows up, thunder, lightning, smoke, the, the mountain's on fire. God speaks uh, literally out loud the Ten Commandments. And, and God basically invites them into relationship. What he basically does, he proposes to them. And he says, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. And they said, we, we will. I do. And God said, okay, so here are the first two rules. First two commandments, ten commandments, no other gods before me. Why? Because marriage is designed to be a monogamous relationship. This relationship is like marriage, right? Eyes for you only. So no other gods because, why? Because a marriage is designed for two. Now, I realize that in our country, pretty soon it'll probably be three. But I'm not kidding. You think I'm kidding? I'm not kidding. Like once we've given up on all rational thought, there's, there's no legal reason why, as our Supreme Court has reigned, that it, the next step won't be polygamy. There, there's no rational, there's no reason to stop that, right? So a culture in confusion, right? But when you go back to Sinai, when you go back to Sinai and, and you go back to the, the, God's vision for marriage, eyes for you, there's not room for three. So the first rule is no other gods before me. The second rule is no images. Why? Because any image of God misrepresents God, limits God. And so God says, I want a real relationship. I don't, I don't want you to misrepresent who I am, an image, and you can't have any other gods. It's just by the nature. It's a marriage. I love you. You love me, right? So that's how it starts. But watch what happens within a month and a half of Mount Sinai, him revealing that. Moses up on the mountain getting the rest of the instructions what happens, the nation falls back into idolatry. Why? Because there's this natural pull of the human heart. There's something wrong with us. And this, becomes, this is very much like a young couple getting married and then a month and a half in, the wife having an affair. But what's crazy is this is not a single thing that happens like, oh, that was a mistake. This becomes a serial pattern in the life of Israel. This is like their normal thing, that throughout their history, over the next thousand years, it's every once in a while, there'll be a revival, come back to God. But overall, it's a constant draw to idolatry, to other lovers. It eventually will lead to the loss of their land and their country, and they go into exile as a result of it. And so over these thousand years, God's sending prophets time and time, inviting them back to their first love relationship. A great example there in your note sheet is in Jeremiah. Jeremiah in chapter 2, and uh, so God is speaking to the nation Israel, and he says, the Lord, and whenever you see Lord, all caps, remember that means what? Yeah. Yahweh, personal name of God, right? So Yahweh gave to me, Jeremiah, and by the way, I put this in the New Living Translation because uh, the Hebrew is very graphic, and the New Living picks it up. 
Okay, so the Lord, Yahweh, gave me another message. And he said, go and shout this message to Jerusalem. This is what Yahweh says. He says, I remember how eager you were to please me as a young what? Bride. See, that's the imagery constantly in the Old Testament. Israel is the pride. Yahweh is the bridegroom. So uh, I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago, how you loved me. You know, we were in love. And you followed me even through the barren wilderness. Talking about the wilderness wanderings, you know, after coming out of Egypt. In those days, Israel was holy to Yahweh, the first of his children, changing the analogy like his firstborn son. And all who harmed uh, his people were declared guilty and disaster fell. So God would protect his people. He says, listen to the word of Yahweh, people of Jacob, all you families of Israel. This is what Yahweh says. What did your ancestors find wrong with me that led me to stray so far from me? So this is like the young husband coming home and finding out that his wife of a month and a half is having an affair with someone at work. And it's, it's really saying, like, like what, what went wrong? What, I, I've loved you completely. I have been faithful. I thought we were close. We've been connected. Like, what did I do wrong? You see? So, like, like God's putting us in the selfless position of what fault that, like, have I not kept, uh, kept up my end of the, the bargain, the relationship? And so, Kestius is just, they worshiped idols only to become worthless themselves. And this is the message of the Bible. When you take something else from creation, you make it your ultimate value and worship it, it was not designed to sustain you. And so we take something worthless and we worship it, we become worthless, which is what Paul's saying in Romans 1, that downward spiral. And so he says, for my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. When we go to Israel on the Adventure Israel trip, the very first day, in the second site, I take our group to a place called Bet Shemesh. Bet Shemesh means house of the sun. It's a city that's at the end of the Valley of Sorek, which is where Samson and Delilah's story, a lot of things happen there. So we do some teaching there, and then I take everyone down the hill, and we walk into an underground cistern. Now, the cistern was just discovered a few years ago. It is massive. Um, It holds 50,000 gallons of water. We go down all these steps into the cistern underground. It's completely blackened out. And we talk about cisterns. And we talk about water. And we talk about Jeremiah too. When you go to Israel, what you find out is Israel is very much like Southern California in terms of its climate. So it's semi-arid. And imagine Southern California if there was no water from the Colorado River. Uh, you, if you were just living off the rain. So in Israel, what you learn is that water is life. And so it makes the Bible come alive, all these images of water. And so um, in Israel, they have different terms for different kinds of water, like water that's fresh, running water, a creek or fresh water, is called living water. It's alive. Water that you put in a reservoir like a cistern during the rainy season, you put it in the cistern, and then you store it up for when the rainy season's done so you have water. But over the months, I mean, you know, cockroaches are going to get in there and animals are going to get in there and die in there and there's going to be moss and, 
you know, all kinds of, you know, crud's going to be in there. But anyway, uh, so it's going to be horrible water, but it's water. And you need water to live, right? It's better than nothing. And so what God is saying, he's saying, like, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they've said, no, we're going to search after idols. We're going to dig out cisterns. He says, but the tragedy is they're broken cisterns, cracked cisterns. The worst case scenario is you go in the dry season and get water, and there's a crack, and all the water is gone. It can't. Now, Jesus builds on this in the New Testament. And he says, stands up at the Feast of Tabernacles in, in John chapter 7, and he says, listen, he said, any one of you is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Because out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. About Jeremiah 2, right? And so the, the image is, God says, I am the source of all life. It's in me that, as Paul said today, that you live, you move, you have your being. I'm just a source of all life. He said, but when you run after other gods, they leave you empty. They leave you thirsty. And he goes on, and he says, you say, Israel says, that is not true. I haven't worshipped the images of Baal. And in Hebrew, Baal or Baal means husband or Lord. And so the Baals were, they were nature gods, gods of the rain, gods of, uh, you know, prosperity, things like gods of reproduction. And so there were different kinds of Baal gods. And so God says, um, how can you say that? Go and look at any value, uh, any valley. I mean, there's like these worship sites all over Israel. He says, face the awful sins you've done. He says, and here comes the, the candid part. You're like a restless female camel desperately searching for a mate. You're like in heat. He said, you're like a wild donkey sniffing the wind at mating time. Who can restrain her lust? Don't you love the Bible? I just love the Bible. Like people so misunderstand it. Those who desire her don't need to search. She goes running to them. It's like, she's like, you're, like a, you're like an animal in heat. It's like you're not just running after the... You're not just like a God's coming after you. You're like you're going after them. This becomes a common metaphor in the prophets. Israel's like a whore. She's spreading her legs under every tree. They have these trees, place a worship site. In one place, God says, you're like a prostitute, except that instead of them paying you, you're paying them. And so this image is, is as a race, there's something desperately wrong with us that we have this magnetic pull to the dark side of finding something else other than the true God that it will allow us to do what we want, making that our God, finding something in creation and worshiping as a creator, and the end result is we end up worthless. We end up thirsty. We end up, Romans 1, our lives coming unraveled. And so this is what Paul is seeing in Athens. Athens is like a picture of the story of our race with idols and altars and temples at every corner. John Calvin, one of the great reformers on the Protestant Reformation, said the human heart is an idol factory. Number two, 
Then the second half of this story then that Paul is telling in Athens is, yes, not only do we have a natural pull towards the dark side of idolatry, but this is why Jesus came, that Jesus came to free us. If it's true that by pursuing other gods it leaves us worthless, if it's true that by pursuing other gods that it leaves us thirsty uh, and empty, then what Paul is saying is that Jesus has come to break the bonds of idolatry. He's come to free us. He's come to that the light might pierce the darkness. Did you notice the language he used? He talked about ignorance. These were days of ignorance. And he says, but God has overlooked that. His grace is here, and he's, he's come to lead you to truth that will lead you to life. In fact, I love, and there in your note sheet, I put a passage for one of my favorite books in the Bible, which is 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 5, at the end of the book, uh, John says this. He kind of sums up that why Jesus came. And he says, we, we know also that the Son of God has come. So why has Jesus come? And he's given us what? Understanding. understanding. That Jesus came to give us understanding. This is what Paul is saying. You've lived in ignorance, but now God has come to give you understanding. And he said, so that we may know him who is true. And he says, that, that, hey, you're in ignorance. This is not the truth about God. This is the truth. That's why Jesus came. So he is the true God and what? Eternal life. life. And remember again, we've learned this in Acts. Eternal life does not primarily mean life that never ends. In the Greek, it's the life of the age or life of the coming ages. We're in the fallen dark world. One day, the king will come. All wrongs will be turned to right. New heavens, new earth. The life of the coming age, life as it was designed is coming. When we become a follower of Jesus, we become a partaker of that life that's coming here and now. So he says that, that this is why Jesus has come to give us understanding that leads to life. And remember, he's writing to believers, right? But notice what he says next. This is how he ends the whole book. Dear children, keep yourself from what? Idols. He's writing to Christians. He says, hey, God has redeemed you. You've come to Jesus. Understanding has broken in. Life has come. A few, a few verses earlier, he said, he who has the son has the life. He who doesn't have the son doesn't have the life. You've entered into the light. Now, guard yourself, Christ followers. Guard yourself from going back to idols. Now, the thing is, you know, often we think of idols simply as images. But it's so much bigger. Uh, John Stott, one of the greatest uh, leaders of the, the second half of the 20th century, evangelical, Bible-believing leaders, you know, great author, theologian, he wrote a commentary on Acts. And on this passage in Athens, this is what he writes. Look on your note sheet. He said, idols are not limited to primitive societies. There are many sophisticated idols, too. An idol is a God substitute. So it catches any person or thing that occupies the place God should occupy. So what's that place? We're going to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. Top priorities, know him, to love him, to please him. That's the position God should have. He says any person or thing that occupies is an idol. So covetousness. Interesting, Colossians 3, 6, not on your note sheet. Colossians 3, 6, Paul says greed is idolatry. So he says, covetousness is idolatry. Ideologies can be idolatries. So can fame or wealth or power 
or sex or food or alcohol or other drugs. Catch his parents. You know, some of you in here, let me just give you an example. Some of you in here, what your mother thinks is more important than what Jesus thinks. It was true. For some of you here, like you know what the Bible says, that when you get married, that you should leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife, and two become, that becomes your primary relationship. But for some of you here, you are not putting your marriage above as your top priority because your mother would be terribly offended. And so this is what Jesus says, this is what your mother says, and you're doing what your mother says. What does that mean? It means your mother is your idol. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14. He said, anyone who doesn't love me more than father, mother, husband, wife, kids, brothers, sisters, cannot be my disciple. Why? Because if there's something that we love more than him, something that's more important to us than what he thinks, that becomes our highest value. That becomes our idol. And that's what he's saying here. He goes on, so parents, spouse, children, friends, work, recreation. One of the great gods of our age is recreation. Toys, time off, playing, you know, video games. Television, uh, I would throw in, uh, you know, social media, internet, uh, Facebook, uh, Facebook, uh, (laughs) Facebook, uh, and uh, possessions, Uh, Even church, religion, and Christian service, right? So anything that becomes more important to us, top value, that we serve because we believe that if we serve this and make it our top priority, it will lead us to life. That becomes our idol. So it leads to this question. And the question there in your note sheet is a section called Idolatry, Idolatry 101, the key question. Question is, are there any idols that you need to lay down? things that are holding you back from the life Jesus came to give you. Now, I think, honestly, there may be a lot of us here that say no, that as of today, right now, the best we know that, no, that we are in a great spot with the Lord. And so I think that's often true. What I found is that, of course, this is how we start our journey with Jesus, right? There is no salvation without repentance. We've learned that in that, faith and repentance, double sign of the coin, right? And so when we come to Jesus, we lay down our idols, but as we've seen in 1 John, that's not the end of the story because often in our life, there are idols in our life that we don't even realize we have until life or circumstance or the Holy Spirit reveals it. You know, last, uh, last session of Life Group, in my Life Group, we were going around and just sharing, hey, how have you seen one another grow? And it was just an amazing night, right? Just awesome night. But this one husband was saying, man, one of the people that I've seen grow the most this year is my wife. Like, God has just done a work in her life, and it's been amazing to watch, and he's sharing about this. And he gets done sharing, and she said, well, I, she said, I feel like I need to share why that is. She said, the reason is, is because the Holy Spirit showed me this year that my kids are my idol. And she said, I had to wrestle with that and lay them down. And she said, once I did, I began to grow like crazy. So at the start of the year, she didn't know that. But over the course of the Holy Spirit, Revealed that. And that's how it often works. We often have idols in our life. We don't even, we don't realize our mother is our idol 
until someone points it out or until a decision comes or until you feel God is calling you to move across the state and your mother says, no, you cannot go. I will not let you go. (laughs) If you go, you're betraying me. You're being a horrible. And God's calling you. And you didn't even realize it. And now there's this huge wrestle inside of you. And now you realize, well, who is your God? You see, and we don't even realize it until push comes to shove often. But can I tell you, when that time comes, what we do determines our future. Because if we continue to hold on to something in creation, even if it's a great gift, and we make it our ultimate over, and we make it our God, it will end up betraying us. It will end up leaving us dry and thirsty. The mom who makes her kids her God, there is a day when your kids leave. And you are left empty and thirsty. Here's another thing. When we make something in creation our God, we put a weight on it that it was never designed to bear. Like for some, some people will get married Because they truly believe if they find the right person and they're completely in love and they have the perfect romance, life will be perfect. (laughs) It's kind of like amen. Uh, And and we believe that, right? And so what we do is we, we make our spouse our God and we... We believe if we truly love them and serve them and we invest in this, that it will bring us to fulfillment. And we put a pressure on that person they were never designed to bear. Because there is nothing in creation that can meet the need of the human heart for a creator. There is nothing finite that can satisfy the thirst of our soul for the infinite. And when we put pressure on our job to fulfill us, our marriage to fulfill us, our fiance to fulfill us, this pursuit, this priority, this hobby, we put a pressure on them. It was never designed to fulfill. And in the process, we will kill that relationship or kill that job. And what was designed to be an incredible gift will end up being a curse. The right job is an incredible gift. You make it a God, it will become a curse. And that's true of any God other than God. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And so what I want you to catch today is we're all in this together. As fallen people that have been redeemed, rescued, we have repented by definition of our idols. But what I want you to catch is the dark side in us, that old part, always has a natural propensity to look for something in creation that will satisfy us. And if we buy into that, it will leave us high and dry and thirsty. And in the process, great damage. And so the message is, like Jesus said, hey, why have you forsaken me, the fountain of living water? to run after broken cisterns that hold no water. Let's pray. 
Father, we come today as your church, and we just want to repent, God. We just want to admit that as fallen people, that we have this natural draw to the dark side, but we thank you for the gift of your spirit. And the deepest part of our being, we've been reborn. We've been remade. There's a new creation. And so, God, we pray that we would listen to the call of the new creation that's in us, that we might live and thrive. God, we realize that whenever you call us to lay down an idol, it's never because you want to restrict us. It's always because you want to free us. And so, God, we pray that today, if there's an idol there in our life that you're speaking to right now, you'd give us the grace and the courage to surrender to you, that we might rise with you to a new life and live the lives we're called to live, that we would know the true God and eternal life. So, God, as we bring you our gifts, our offerings, we pray that as we worship you, that you would truly be, as this song says, the king of our heart, that you would be the song that we sing that you and you alone might be the stream that satisfies the deepest longing of our heart. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and worship. And oh God, that's our prayer, that you are good, and you are the God of Israel, but even more, you're the God of Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled all of Israel's promise and embodied the calling of your true son. You're the God that's led us out of our Egypt, And you, God, has led us through the waters of baptism into this new land, into this life that is eternal. It starts here and now we come to you, God. And even as we've come at the start of our journey and we have repented and we have changed our mind about you and changed direction and come under your leadership, God, with the Apostle John, we want to pray, God, help us to keep ourselves from idols because you are the true God and eternal life. You are the fountain of living water. And it's from you that those fountains of living water flow. And so, God, we pray that in our lives you would shepherd us, gentle, tender when possible, and firm and sharply when required, to let us know that there are other gods that have invaded our life and idols that are leading us towards worthlessness, a life of worthlessness. And instead, God, that you would shepherd us back and that we would find new freedom in the Creator and not in the creation. So we thank you for the way you bless us and the incredible creation you've given us, for the relationships in our life, for the jobs and the cars and the stuff and the blood. We thank you for your incredible generosity. But we thank you most of all for who you are, the one who satisfies the deepest longing of the human heart. And we pray you'd shepherd us to a place where we are no longer worshiping idols. We are worshiping the creator and not the creation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 Hey, well, I'm so glad that you came and joined us today. I want to thank you for being here and just celebrating what's not the presence of our King. I want to remind you that after the service, as always, that over to my right against the wall, there's a prayer team, men and women, who would love to pray with you about anything that badges on that is on your heart. Maybe God's dealing with you in an area of idolatry. You just want to pray with someone about that. And ask God to change your heart in that area. They'd love to pray with you about that. And then uh, as we go next week, uh, next, next week we're going to be coming back to the same passage. There's so much here. We want to unpack this amazing message about this creator God. And so next week we'll continue. Until then, may the Lord be with you. And may this be a week where you seek after him as a source of eternal life. May in him the deepest thirst of your heart be quenched. 
May you never forsake the fountain of living water. May you close down any cisterns that you have been digging, knowing that they will never satisfy. May you come to the one who said, he who believes in me out of, the, out of his innermost heart will flow rivers of living water. Not just satisfying us, but flowing out to a thirsty world. May the God of Jesus Christ be your God. And may this be a week. Together we are casting down our idols. Amen? Amen. Have a great week.